Well, this morning we are, like I said earlier, jumping into Genesis chapter 11. And um, I am excited about this passage of scriptures. You saw that screen, that slide on your screen just a minute ago. I've titled this Up, Up, and Away with You. <laughs> and if you've read the passage, you'll, you'll understand what it means. Um, let, me, let me start by saying a few things like this. Uh, some people are really good at languages. Uh, me, maybe when I was a bit younger, but now uh, I find it a bit harder. And I guess that's a fairly normal reality. As you get older, it's harder to learn languages. When we were kids, we learned a bit of, of French in school in Canada, just a little. Um, contrary to what most people think outside of Canada about Canadians, I do not speak French <laughs> um, much at all. Uh, we took a bit of German in school, had a German teacher. We learned a fair bit of, Ind- my wife and I learned, a f- and our kids learned a fair bit of Indonesian when we lived in Indonesia, but I've you know, forgotten much of that now. I feel like every word in Spanish I learn, uh, which is not very many, replaces a word that I used to know in a different language. <laughs> it's, uh, sometimes I can think of words in Indonesian, sometimes in Spanish, and, but never in German or French. I'm not sure why that is. But um, There are people, though, uh, there are people that, that can speak several languages fluently, and they amaze me. You know, they can just, they can grab a language from here and a language from there and get the accents right and, you know, how to pronounce the vowels and all that kind of stuff. And, and it's just, it's fascinating to me to see people who are linguists like that. Um, but travel is good for language though, isn't it? Travel is good. It's helpful. Uh, you should, you should always try to learn a few words when you travel to another country, like, you know, please and, and thank you and those sorts of things. Um, and of course, uh, you should always know the word for bathroom. <laughs> so you can ask. <laughs> it's always a good idea to know that word. So learning the word bathroom in, in several different languages is going to be a helpful life skill. Anyways, here today in chapter 11 of Genesis, we have, we have the answer to the incredibly complex issue of language and where they all came from. And if you study languages at all, you will find traces of different languages that show up in many other languages. English, of course, is one of those kinds of things where, you know, multiple language and roots of other languages are, are a part of it. You know, you can see French influence in Spanish, Latin, all of those kinds of things. Um, and most languages are like that. They're sort of, you know, they borrow from bits and pieces and different things. There's always that kind of reality. This story in chapter 11 traces it all back to one location, okay? One location. The plain, what, what the passage calls, the, and we'll read it in a moment, but the plains of Shinar, or Babylon, or modern-day Mesopotamian region, which is really modern-day Iraq, okay? So if you're trying to figure that out geographically, that's where we're at. So I want to read the passage for us uh, from chapter 11, verses 1 to 9. Follow along. I just, like I said earlier, I find this to be a fascinating story and the way it ties in to so many different things that we can learn. So this is the Tower of Babel. Of course, that word Babel, uh, really we use that word ourselves in English, and it just kind of means confusion and misunderstood, those sorts of things, babbling. And that's you know, kind of where we get it from. But Babylon is kind of a play of words going on here with the writer. Um, now the whole world had one language. Here we are, chapter 11. The whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a play in Shinar, a plain, excuse me, in Shinar, and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. 
and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that men were building. And the Lord says, If one speak people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. Um, like I said, I find this to be a, a fascinating passage of Scripture. Um, and now, it's, it's a section of Scripture with no, not without its difficulties, some easy to reconcile, others a bit harder. Now, if you read chapter 10, I referenced that as we started to worship and sing this morning, the table of nations dealing with uh, Noah's descendants directly. That's what we're dealing with there. It's called the table of nations. You will very quickly understand if you're reading with your eyes open and you know what's coming in chapter 11, you will understand that different languages were spoken of, spoken of and spoken before we get to chapter 11. So you go, what's the big deal? How do, you know, what's going on here? What, you, you know, like I don't understand. Well, this one's really quite easy. Chapter 11 is an origin story. That's what it is. It's not meant to be taken chronologically. It is just the author's way of filling in the details. So don't get too excited about this one. It's not an issue. Not an issue at all, really. Uh, in fact, the split or the confusing of language happens about ch uh, verse, uh, chapter 10, verse 25, uh, in the time and day of a guy called Peleg, who was one of the descendants of Noah, and his name apparently just means divided. So the story of chapter 11 kind of fits right there. And so that's one, that one is... is you know, it's not necessary to get too excited about that. The other, the other issues are not so obvious and require deep dives into, you know, historical accounts, archaeology, the genealogies that are, are listed in Scripture, uh, other ones that are discovered in history uh, to help us establish timelines, gaps in the timelines, all those kinds of things. You know, just the question, the one simple question of, of, of how long after the flood... How long after the flood did this Tower of Babel narrative thing take place? And if you Google that, uh, it will send you down a proverbial rabbit hole. You're going to need a, a picnic basket because you're going to get hungry. You're going to spend so much time going down that rabbit hole because it's just, it's deep, you know, it's really deep. And of course, there's always the naysayers and those uh, from the other side who say this is just a fable. It didn't happen this way. Um, those sorts of things. Uh, as potentially important as some of these issues and questions are, they are, I don't think, the key at all to understanding um, this passage. Now, for some of you, and I know this is true because we've had conversations, I, I, if your habit has become or your approach is you know, to find errors and dispute the accounts or to prove your point or the, the point of some author that you read or teacher or tradition you have decided is correct over all the others, then it'll be difficult, a very difficult journey. I mean, Scripture is going to be tough for you, period. And it's likely to leave you, you know, bitter and a little bit empty inside. But I think there's another way to do this. If you choose to step into the story with faith, into the story with faith, into the narrative with faith. And with the perspective 
that t- Scripture itself teaches this over in, in 2 Timothy, that all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for, for teaching and correcting and training, etc. All Scripture. So if you step into the narrative with that idea in mind, then this passage is a literal gold mine. It is, it is deep and precious. And the more you read it, study it, consider what God may be telling us, I would say there's riches untold here in this passage. Now, I think most of Scripture is like that, but the narrative stories and these early ones in Genesis are just so foundational and profound, I think. Um, that is the approach that I'm taking, choosing to take. I want us to mine some of what, have, what is here today. Now, the first thing you need to see here comes from the place, the placing, um, from placing the passage or understanding the passage in its biblical context. Okay, so if you're taking notes at all, you know, write this down, understanding the passage in its biblical context. That's what we're going to do right now. Uh, not the context of the whole world at the time. Even though the passage itself starts with the phrase, the whole world. Most of our English Bibles, and I know this to be a fact because I, I checked most of our English Bibles that we use, and I suspect the same thing made its way across into Spanish. The whole world it starts with. So just put that aside for a minute, and let's look at it within its biblical context. This is within the context of of the post-flood world, and Noah's descendants, their movements, growth, where they they lived and what they did, etc. But it also falls on the heels and understanding uh, the, the nature of man's relationship with his creator. This is really the broader story of Scripture, but in sharp focus here in Genesis, man's relationship Uh, with his creator. If we learned anything at all from the flood narrative, the destruction, the loss of life that it brought, as abhorrent as that is to the modern mind, we we learn that God expects to be obeyed. And his righteousness, his character, his righteousness is a pattern that we are expected to model. But here's, here's the trouble. They see and knew this firsthand. They, they rode around. I mean, not all of these descendants right up to our chapter, but you've got to remember in these days, these people lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, so these stories would get passed down. They wouldn't be that far from their memory. They saw, they saw and heard this firsthand. Ride, rode around in that giant ark, relearning and hearing their father and grandfather's Tell the story over and over. Reiterate the why. Explain the who of who God is. And then they, the story comes to this place where they exit the ark. Back to our biblical context for a minute. If, if you have a Bible with you, flip to chapter 9. And chapter 9 is what's called the Noahic Covenant or God's covenant with Noah. Um, and if you look at the beginning of the, these verses, or the, these beginning verses in chapter 9, you will see essentially this. I will bless you with everything. It's all here for you. Now go, fill the earth, be fruitful, multiply, take care of each other. I demand this, and I promise to never flood the earth again. Be kind to one another. All of these kinds of things. And I promise to never flood the earth again. I just said that twice, but that was the promise. And here is the sign. You remember the sign? Let's have a rainbow. (laughs) A rainbow. Now jump forward back to our passage to chapter 11. And what do we see? We see men moving eastward and settling in a plain and preparing to build a city. Do you see the problem here? The problem that's inherent in the narrative? This is likely less than, I I studied this and researched it, and you can't get a definitive answer, but it's likely less than a thousand years 
after the flood. And again, remember how old men lived back then? It's likely less than a thousand years, and men have decided to forget about God's commands to fill the earth. Man, the descendants of Noah, that's what's in view here, have decided that it's not a command to be followed. They have forgotten the promises of his provision that are directly tied to the blessings that they were to receive as well. Essentially, God sees this as an act of rebellion, and he scatters them away with you. What is the lesson here? There's, there's several, I think, but one we really need to lean into is this, okay? This is an important one. The blessings of God in our lives are directly linked to righteous living and following his commands. Let me, let me read that again. It's going to raise some eyebrows for some of you. Let me read it again. The blessings of God in our lives are directly linked to righteous living and following his commands. Now, the eyebrows that got raised, let me, let me just clear this up. This does not equate to some sort of work harder and God will bless you more teaching or ethic. But it certainly doesn't mean that we can run around and do whatever we want either. Willfully disobey God, make our own decisions, create our own philosophical frameworks to discern right from wrong, uh, our own moral meanderings, if you will, um, and, and never consider the design that went into it all, the righteousness of God that sits at the foundations of it all. That's what these early chapters of Genesis scream, let alone all the commands that we know of, and then turn around and wonder why things are not better than they are, why there is so much evil in the world, pain in my life, discord in my relationships, and on and on and on. And it is because of this, the blessings of God in our lives are directly linked to righteous living and following his commands. The lesson is, when the holy commands of God are disregarded, chaos and confusion will follow. Babel. So that's the biblical context. Got to get it. And it informs us about what is going on here and it teaches us clearly the next thing we need to see is the cultural context. The cultural context. The building of a city, walls around it, the tower, these are not things that were uncommon. We shouldn't read this and go, this is the first time this ever happened. In fact, they are culturally, uh, in fact, they are common culturally in the day and age. We're contextually present around them. They would have seen them is the point. Lots of people have made a big deal in this you know, passage about the type of construction material and the brick with the tar, and, or it's literally bitumen is what it is, for mortar. Lots of people made a big deal about that. I, I don't know if there's something there or not. I really don't think it's a big deal. I suspect it just has much to do with where they are, you know, or rather how it was done where they are. So they did it. Which is why they get the idea in the first place, I guess, for the city and the tower, because they had seen it. The tower is what is called, and I don't know if I'm pronouncing this correctly or not, but the tower was fashioned in form in, in what is called a, cig a cigarut, a cigarut, which usually had four base sides, anywhere from 60 to 200 feet wide on each side, and then it built up like a pyramid from there. And as I've mentioned, there were others around at the same time in this region. And they are religious in nature, and it is not a lookout tower, uh, as some of you might consider, you know, to keep yourself protected from, from attacking enemies. I suppose it could have done some of that as well, but its prime function was religious in nature. You see towers that are for fortification and lookout and those kinds of things later in the development of the nation of Israel, but that's not what this is. 
It is essentially seen or understood as a means or a gateway to the divine with a temple structure down at the bottom at its base to worship in. Pagan worship. Not so much for the people to go up and access God, but rather as a means by which the gods can descend and man can access him or them, their deities. Serve them. There was like tables often at the top where they would prepare feasts for deities. That was the idea. Feed them, sacrifice, whatever their needs were. In other words, the descendants of Noah, listen to this part. The descendants of Noah were building a structure that reflected a pagan approach to the divine that they had picked up from the pagans around them. Ouch. Do I even need to explain the lesson here? The passage says they wanted to make a name for themselves, be seen, be feared perhaps by others around them, but certainly the whole, you know, the whole, look at me, you know, see us over here, see us from a long way away, look how great we are. Look at the size of this tower and the grandeur of our city. Look at that in a bit more, a little bit later. I like what the writer does here. It's, it's kind of clever. It, it feels a little bit like tongue-in-cheek fun he's having. He says, God comes down to see it. <laughs> God, God comes down to see it. I, I think this is, and, and I'm not the only one who pointed this out. Several commentators have pointed this out. He's being coy and clever, trying to point to the absurdity of the creator of the universe needing to come down. It actually comes down in this passage twice. Comes down, evaluates, goes back and says, come let us, all of us, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let's do this. Interesting parallel to the day, you know, when, when the Holy Spirit returns and confuses language again, or sorry, excuse me, gives them the ability at the day of Pentecost, not confuses, but brings them, you know, they're each hearing language being spoken in their own tongue. Interesting reversal. There's a lot to be said about that. Perhaps that's another sermon. But let us go down and confuse their languages. It's, it's absurd. <laughs> it's literally absurd that the creator of the universe needs to come down to see this puny little object that, that pales in comparison to the grandeur of you know, just the night sky and its billions of stars, the power of the one who holds them all in place by his grand design, that that God would need to come down and see this silly little thing. It's absurd. It's like saying, I need to come down to see it because from where I sit, you know, metaphorically, it is really, really hard to see in comparison to all the rest. <laughs> it's clever. It's foolish. It's a funny picture. The lesson here. Any attempt that ancient, modern, present, past, or future humankind, any attempt to commune with God, control God, use God, or create a God-like replacement in some fashion that is more about my needs and desires outside of what the God of the universe has provided and proclaimed holy will be met with disregard and disapproval by God. That's the lesson. This is not about architecture this is about unbelief. This is not about God fearing the creative capacity of man that somehow this huge tower is impinging on his divine right to create the wonders of the world. No, this is about man not believing that the wonders of God's creation, his blessings, his provision and care are somehow not enough. 
that they need to somehow do something to get closer, bring God down to our level, divine schemes to make him more manageable, predictable, and available. And God says, enough of this, away with you. I will leave you confused and needy, unable to speak the same language, abandon this foolish project, off with you. I guess the follow-up to this is, have we learned our lesson yet? Uh, I read something this week, a a long quote, and I want to share it with you in its entirety because it's good. It's really good. And if I were to give this section, this, this quote, a title, I would call it, Your Paganism is Showing. Here, here he goes. He says, By nature we are all pagans caught in the Babel syndrome. When we think we can manipulate God by praying in Jesus' name to achieve selfish purposes, our paganism is showing. When we claim promises as a means of making God do what we want him to do, our paganism is showing. When we come to think we are indispensable to God because of the money we donate, the talents we have, the ministries we engage in, or the worship we offer, our paganism is showing. When we treat God as a child to be cajoled or a tyrant to be appeased, the Babel syndrome is surging in your veins. We want a manageable God light he calls it. We want to be able to harness his power for our own benefit, no strings attached. Our society has confronted child abuse, spousal abuse, but this is God abuse. (laughs) I shivered the first time I read that. I had to read it a couple of times to get my head around the severity and the veracity of what he is saying. Let me say that another way. This is a really hard truth to swallow, but it's truth nonetheless. We need to ask ourselves these types of evaluative questions when we read texts like this. Is there some of this in me? Do I treat God like this for my benefit to make a name for myself? Do I treat him like a slot machine I drop money in so he will play my song and I can dance? Or is it a shopping cart approach for me. I just put the stuff in that I like and leave the rest on the shelves. Create your own, go ahead and do it, create your own, you know, metaphorical comparison. The point is this. We need to be careful not to read this and say, this has nothing to do with me. What foolish people, how arrogant of them. That's the danger. There's much here today, today in our society in our very churches, in my life that may condemn us to a similar fate if we were actually in this story then. The question we need to ask today is can we change that narrative? I think we can approach this question and issue by asking another question about context. We have looked at the biblical context uh, and their disobedience, the, the, the cultural context and they're bent towards a pagan approach to connecting with God, but I think there's something in their current context, at least least what is being expressed in it through their disobedience and paganism. And it really is the sin of pride. If you read through this passage and you don't pick up on that, you've missed something. If we want to change the narrative, get away from their story and move back into the center of God's story, if, if you will, if we have wandered away or perhaps 
you're listening this morning, you've never really entered into it fully, then we, you, I, me, we will all need to confront the sin of pride. Two times in the New Testament, the writers of the New, two writers in the New Testament, James and Peter, directly quote the verse from Proverbs chapter 3 that says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I mean, we could talk all day about that grace, uh, you know, what Jesus does, how he was humble, all of those kinds of things in the tie-in. Uh, it's several more times in the, in, the, in the book of Proverbs, this concept, how God sets himself up against those who are proud. The prophets contain allusions to this kind of language as well. Here's the original language in, in its depth and com, you know, complexity as it comes out of the Hebrew in the Old Testament. It means God sets himself up like a warrior, like a warrior does opposes like a warrior against the proud. He goes to war against those who are full of pride. The issues in this passage here in Genesis are are not so much the fact that they are building, it's not about the fact that they're building a city and a tower, that they actually are doing it, but it's the, the why they are building the city and the tower. And the text is clear, they wanted to make a name for themselves, but it likely goes way beyond that it's also tied to disbelief and, and likely fear as well, which are, again, rooted in pride. Perhaps they had questions like this. Remember, probably less than a thousand years, but as men were living older in those days, these stories would have, you know, tarried a little longer, if you will. It's not like our age of, you know, average 70 years. We have, like, guys living 700 and 600 and 500 years, so these stories tarried longer. And maybe they had questions like, can we really believe what God said about the flood is the rainbow still a real, uh, you know, actual sign? Maybe we need to protect ourselves. Or maybe they said, the others around us are bigger. We'll, we'll look weak. What if we get attacked? Who will protect us? Or everyone else has cities and towers. Why shouldn't we? All of these rooted in pride. We need, we deserve, we want, or put the pronoun I in front of it because it's the same thing. I need, I deserve, I want. Certainly the old adage of pride comes before the fall is so, you know, true here. Here's a lesson again. Any and every time our human pride rises up, okay, that's tower image for you as we tie it to our passage. Any and every time our human pride rises up to meet our perceived wants, desires, security concerns, and fears, anytime this happens, we wall ourselves off from receiving the blessings of living a surrendered and dependent life in the center of God's will and story. It's just that Simple. This is the, and that's the life, that's the description of the life in Christ. That's a disciple's journey, dependence, complete trust, surrender, and then the narrative changes. Then the narrative changes. This passage of scripture, as, as hard as it is perhaps to get our modern minds around, to believe how foolish these people could have been, this story is our story. This story is our story. The challenge is still to live in obedience and blessing and the blessings of knowing the creator. And it all happens now through, you know, we're on the other side of the cross, as I always like to say, we're, you know, in, in, in light of who Jesus is and what he's done. The challenge is still obedience to the commands that are supposed to define us as his followers. Ones like this. Go into the world and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Man, lay, you know, the day of Pentecost, the great commission that I just read to you, lay that over Genesis chapter 11 and their disobedience to do the same. If you, 
If you can't find some analogies that fit and describe our current situation and what happens when we're not obedient. Here lies the final lesson for today. The story is still being written. Go and live your story in the obedience commanded, the humility required, modeled by Jesus, the blessings given and the joys that result. Let me read it again. Go and live your story in the obedience commanded, the humility required, and the blessings given and the joys that result. Let's pray.